0: Welcome to the Murderosity Podcast, where we discuss all things murder, mayhem, the mysterious, and the macabre. I'm your co-host, Bob Hancock, joined on the other side by the rambunctious Rebel Roan. Rebel, how are you doing this week?
1: I'm good. How are you?
0: I cannot complain at all. This week, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. We're still sticking with the mayhem and macabre, also touching a bit on the murder, I guess. But. We aren't just discussing one case, we're discussing several, I suppose. This week we're going to be discussing people who have survived executions. Yes. So, why don't you take it away for us?
1: All right. executions have been in place for as long as humanity has been in existence. The first historically recorded death sentence was carried out in the 16th century BC Egypt. A member of nobility was accused of witchcraft in order to take his own life. So in this episode, we're going to discuss those who have survived attempted executions.
0: Wow, 16th century Egypt, that's yes. that's a ways.
1: Yes. I actually did
0: not know that either, so you so learn something every day.
1: Every day. All right, so first up on our list is Anne Green. She's the only woman on the list, and she was accused of infanticide in 1650. He stated she didn't know she was pregnant when she miscarried at approximately 17 weeks in the privy. She had been a scullery maid for Sir Thomas Reed, a justice of the peace, in Duns. II. She claimed that his grandson, Geoffrey Reed, aged 16 or 17, seduced her when she was 22. Allegedly, after the miscarriage, she attempted to conceal the remains of the fetus, but was discovered. Sir Thomas prosecuted her under the Concealment of Birth of Bastards Act of 1624, which presumed that any woman who concealed the death of an illegitimate child had murdered them. Although a midwife testified that the fetus was too underdeveloped to have ever been alive, and several servants testified on her behalf that she was having issues for about a month before the miscarriage, Green was eventually found guilty of murder and hanged at Oxford Castle on December 14, 1650. At her request, several friends pulled on her swinging body and a soldier struck her several times with the butt of his musket. This was to expedite her death after half an hour everyone thought she was dead so they cut her down and gave her to the university of oxford for dissection however the following day physicians discovered that she was breathing weakly and had a faint pulse the group of physicians tried remedies to help her including pouring hot cordial down her throat bloodletting rubbing her extremities applying a poultice to her breasts and a tobacco smoke enema
0: so I have destroyed my search engine, so our listeners don't have to. (laughs) The tobacco smoke enema was actually very much a recognized medicinal practice for quite a long time. It fell out around 1811 because an experiment done by Benjamin Brody demonstrated that nicotine, which was and is the principal active agent in tobacco smoke, Is actually a poison. However, prior to that, it was used by physicians to treat a number of different things. And in the early 1700s, 1800s, they really liked to apply also liquid tobacco enemas. So it was also seen for use for artificial respiration by blowing smoke into the lungs or the rectum. They were thought that could be used interchangeably, but oh. the, the smoke enema was considered the most potent method due to its supposed uh, warming and stimulating properties. Now, wow. prior to the Colombian exchange, tobacco was absolutely unknown in, in Europe and the rest of the old world. But the Native Americans who interacted with these European explorers and settlers introduce them to to tobacco which was used in poultices it was used as an analgesic it was used in the religious ceremonies and it was often used in conjunction with bleedings so that's another process that's kind of fallen out of favor as well but as far as medical opinions go this was a very standard way that was thought to bring life and air back into the lungs of the person was by, as the phrase goes, blowing smoke up their nether regions. Awesome. So, did it work?
1: Well, not exactly. The physicians placed her in a warm bed with another woman, who rubbed her and kept her warm. And she began to eventually recover. So I guess there's, you know, it could be said that it worked in a way, because they tried so many things, and something had to stick, right?
0: I mean, I think that would probably wake me up, but that's just... Personal opinion.
1: Right. So she began speaking 12 to 14 hours later and ate solid food four days later. Within a month, she had fully recovered and thankfully had amnesia about the time surrounding her execution. That's a Yeah, it, it really is. Authorities stayed the execution while she recovered, but ultimately believed she'd been saved by the hand of God, and this demonstrated her innocence, so they pardoned her. After she was released and healed, Green went out to stay with friends in the country, taking her coffin with her. She married, had three children, and died in
0: 1659. So, I kind of feel like, firstly, I I feel that she shouldn't have been in that situation in the first place. I mean, a miscarriage is a miscarriage. However, this, this sings to me of the old, you know, throw a woman into the river. If she sinks, she's innocent. If she floats, she's a witch. And... She dies the way. Either way. That's, right. that's kind of, oh, well, I guess we were wrong for executing you. God has spared you. Yeah, that that's horrible. I'm happy for her that she was able to go on and live out another nine years and marry and have children and whatnot. Taking her coffin with her kind of seems like a big form maybe of her, a dark sense of humor. I don't know. There's not a whole lot about her. but No that one sentence alone made me absolutely yeah this woman's awesome yeah yes
1: so. i would have done the same thing
0: and as she's hanging there though it, it, when you when you do read this case as she is hanging and you know this is her death she's like can someone just pull me so this will end quicker like yeah i mean the woman definitely had some she had some some moxie from everything yes, she that did. i've seen so
1: I, yeah, I, and Jimmy, she was only 22 at the time, so she was young.
0: She was. She, she only was lived until
1: she was 27, so.
0: It's it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, at the time, you know, life was shorter, life expectancies were shorter, but she was definitely one of those that, she, she was a special one. She was definitely a special one. So, who is next up on our list, Rebel?
1: Right next up on our list is Willie Francis. He was a 16-year-old black teenager who was tried and convicted as an adult for the 1944 murder of Andrew Thomas, pharmacist in St. Martinville, Louisiana, that was shot to death. The gun, along with the bullets, were left at the scene. Nine months passed after the murder, and in August 1945, Texas police detained Francis on suspicion of drug trafficking. He was carrying a briefcase and speaking with a stutter. Police claimed that he was carrying Andrew's wallet in his pocket, but that was not substantiated at the time. Initially, Francis named others in connection to the murder, but the police dismissed them. While under interrogation without counsel, he confessed to the crimes and wrote, It was a secret about me and him. There is some speculation that the pharmacist sexually abused Francis, but again, these are unsubstantiated. In his first confession, he claimed that he stole a gun from August Fuselier, who is a deputy sheriff in St. Martinville, and had once threatened to kill Andrew. The gun and bullets went missing from police evidence just before the trial. Francis pled not guilty, though there were two written confessions. It was speculated that he was coerced into making false confessions. His court-appointed defense attorneys did not put up a defense for him. They offered no objections and called no witnesses, and did not question the validity of the confessions, despite him not having counsel when they were made. Two days after the trial began, he was found guilty of murder by 12 white jurors. The judge sentenced him to death, even though he'd been under 15 years old at the time of the crime. On May 3rd, 1946, Francis was strapped into the electric chair, which was a portable device nicknamed Gruesome Gertie. As the electricity was being applied, he began to scream from behind the leather hood and yelled, Take it off! Take it off! Let me breathe! The electric chair was diagnosed and found to have been improperly set up by both an intoxicated prison guard and an inmate from the Louisiana State Penitentiary at Angola. And the sheriff, E.L. Resweber, was quoted as saying, This boy really got in shock when they turned the machine on. After the execution attempt, Bertrand de Blanc, an attorney, took Francis's case. He had been best friends with Andrew, but he felt it was unjust and cruel and unusual punishment to subject him to execution again. The attorney took the case to the Supreme Court in Francis versus Resweber in 1947, citing violations of the 5th, 8th, and 14th Amendment rights, which included violations of equal protection, double jeopardy, and cruel and unusual punishment. The U.S. Supreme Court rejected the appeal. DeBlanc then attempted to have the conviction overturned, citing new evidence and bringing up the flaws in the first trial. However, Francis persuaded the attorney to desist as he did not want to endure a second trial. On May 4th, 1947, Francis had his next execution date, and this time the electric chair caused his death. He was pronounced dead at 12.10 p.m.
0: So, this one's rough. This one's hard. Yeah. My thoughts on this are pretty strong and i think we try to stay pretty apolitical on this podcast so i'm not going to go into any of the politics of it simply the history of really the injustice that african americans suffered especially in pre-desegregation south right. it's it's hard the number of lynchings that happened very disproportionate for example between 1882 and 1968 3446 lynchings of african americans took place primarily in the cotton belt which is like mississippi georgia alabama texas louisiana where this took place
1: Mm -hmm.
0: this young man was mentally disabled he may or he may not have shot this person there may or may not have been extenuating circumstances dealing with it. Highly unusual for anyone under the age of 16 when they committed the crime to be executed or even tried as an adult. And this also wasn't that long ago. Right. Both of my parents were alive when this happened, to put that into context. So we see a young man who was very likely... Aggressively interrogated, gave two confessions that were not necessarily s- super similar. We have evidence that goes missing. We have a gun that supposedly was stolen from a deputy, right. along with the ammunition. This deputy himself had threatened the pharmacist for reasons we don't know. There's just so much corruption and then, when Gruesome Gertie was set up by a drunk prison guard, mm-hmm. like it caused this boy terrible suffering. You'll remember last week, we talked about a man who was executed by the electric chair and the physical damage it did to his body. We went into that. Oh. Our, our listeners should definitely check out that last episode to hear more about that. But this case is... It breaks my heart. This kid didn't want to go through that court procedure again. It was so traumatic that he would rather allow them to execute him without anything, without fighting it. Right. That gives you an idea as to the state of things at the time. Yeah. So those are my my thoughts on on that issue. Okay. I encourage our readers to do their own research, read things up, and, and come to your own conclusions.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: So who's, who's next on the docket?
1: Next up is Alva Earl Campbell Jr. He was convicted of the 1997 murder of Charles Stiles in Franklin County, Ohio. Campbell was born in 1948 and placed in two different treatment facilities, nine separate detention center placements, and two different foster homes between 1959 and 1965. His father was in Lima State Hospital for raping one of his sisters, and his mother was a known prostitute.
0: So Lima State Hospital is actually, it was a mental institution that was for criminal, the criminally insane, I guess is just the easiest way to put it. And it was not a good place to be. In fact, at, at some point, the U.S. government actually stepped in and said, hey, you need to treat both the employees and the inmates better. Wow. So it, it, was, it, was, it was really rough. In 1982, the Lima Correctional Institute, which was a minimum security prison, opened on the same grounds as this hospital or asylum. And it began receiving inmates at that time. That all closed down in 2004. But there have been now... There's a lot of haunted tours and whatnot from this, but it was, it was really, really a terrible, terrible place to be sent. It wasn't like there was a lot of treatment that was actually being done. There was a maximum security section that was set up as well. There were some famous inmates there, like Celie Rose. She's one that she murdered her entire family using arsenic. That's a possible future discussion. but. When the Correctional Institute closed in 2004, they did leave a smaller prison, the Allen Oakwood Correctional Facility, operational on site. And it is still there and still operational, but it's very, very small in comparison to what it, it used to be. It's definitely one of those places that if you go and you look at some of the pictures and you, you read some of the accounts of the inmates, it was pretty rough. That being said, his father raped one of his sisters, so I could see why they would put him in a facility.
1: Yeah. So according to his earliest records, Campbell's crimes included three counts of armed robbery, one count of grand larceny, and one shooting with intent to kill. He was in prison by age 20 and was convicted of murder in 1972 and was known as the quote-unquote poster child for the death penalty by Franklin County Prosecutor Ron O'Brien. In 1997, Campbell was being transported to court on an aggravated robbery charge. He feigned paralysis and went, it was in a wheelchair. Upon his arrival, he overpowered the sheriff's deputy, stole her gun, and fled. He carjacked 18-year-old Charles Diles, forcing him to drive. After three hours, of which Charles mentioned the pursuit and asked if he was the one wanted, Campbell demanded that he get into the floorboard of the truck. When he refused, Campbell shot him twice and killed him. He fled but was caught by police a short while later. Campbell was convicted of the aggravated robbery charge in 1996, six months after Charles' death. He was sentenced to death in April 1988, just a year after the murder. On May 1, 2017, Campbell's execution was rescheduled from September to November 2017. His clemency hearing was scheduled to October 12, 2017, and was voted unanimously against it on October 20th. However, due to the nature of his health problems on November 15th, 2017, the executioners were unable to find a vein to administer lethal injection drugs. His execution was rescheduled to June 5th, 2019. He died of of natural causes due to cancer, lung disease, asthma, and heart problems on March 3rd, 2018. He was 69 years old.
0: Nature was going to get him if the legal system didn't. Yes. To say he was a poster child for the death penalty, that's... That's pretty intense. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to argue that so much given what he did in the future, but it seems almost like prosecutor Ron O'Brien had a crystal ball into the future there. (laughs) Right. So our next case is a pretty brutal one. This one, trigger warning, does involve children. And this person, I believe, this is why the justice system exists, is because of people like this. So, I don't want to give too much away. I think I've given enough away as it is. So, I will let you take it away, Rebel.
1: Rommel Bloom was scheduled to be executed September 15, 2009, by lethal injection. He'd been sentenced to death for the 1984 kidnapping, rape, and murder of 14-year-old Trina Middleton. Broom committed numerous nonviolent crimes in his juvenile years and was repeatedly committed to the Ohio Youth Commission. In 1974, Broom had an an accomplice robbed a man in car at gunpoint, forcing him out. In 1975, he raped a 12-year-old girl who was babysitting his niece. He also committed another robbery. Then he pled guilty to aggravated robbery robbery, and rape and was sentenced to 7 to 25 years in prison. He was paroled on May 11, 1984. Decades later, a woman claimed that he had raped and threatened to kill her when she was 13. In 1984, Broom attempted to abduct a 12-year-old girl, but was interrupted by neighbors and fled. Three days later, he abducted, raped, and murdered 14-year-old Trina Middleton while she was walking home from a football game in East Cleveland, Ohio. A few months later, Broom attempted to abduct and physically assaulted an 11-year-old girl whose sister witnessed the attack. The mother interrupted them and held on to the car while screaming for help. He was arrested later that day and charged with numerous crimes, including aggravated murder. While Broom offered to plead guilty in exchange for a sentence of 30 years to life, the offer was rejected. He was found to be guilty and sentenced to death. In 2003, Broom accepted an offer from the state of Ohio for a DNA test to prove his innocence, but the results did not indicate an exact match, so it failed to exonerate him
0: really found it interesting when you look at the clemency hearing which took mm-hmm. place in 2003 as you said it's worded really 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 well because as you said the dna report didn't give an exact match right, right. so the full quote on that is that the dna report does not indicate an exact match otherwise stated eight or nine other black males in the country would have the same profile end quote right. So it really, while it didn't a million percent show, yeah, this is the guy, it narrowed it down quite a bit. Right.
1: On the execution date, executioners tried for two hours to maintain a vein before he was granted a one-week reprieve. Room's lawyers argued that his first execution attempt was cruel and unusual punishment and that executing him would mean his evidence would be lost irretrievably. In March 2016, the Ohio Supreme Court rejected the appeal and ruled that the state could try it again to execute him. The lawyers argued that another attempt would violate double jeopardy protections under the 5th and 14th Amendments into the U.S. Constitution. In December 2016, the U.S. Supreme Court declined to give Broom a hearing on his appeal and set an execution date for June 17, 2020. It was delayed until 2022. Broom later died from suspected complications from COVID-19 on December 28th, 2020.
0: Well, I suppose I can no longer say that COVID did nothing good because <laughs> we'll let that on there. It is interesting to see, though, that this is almost the exact same arguments that the attorney for Willie Francis used. And yeah. the Supreme Court then also declined to give a stay of execution for these reasons. In fact, they refused to even hear his case. So I'm going to assume that they were using previous cases as, as a reason for that. But yeah, this guy, I, I'm not, again, not going to go into whether the death penalty is ethical or not ethical, but this guy was, was a bad person. He was definitely not, you know, he's like, like I said earlier, he's the reason we have a judicial system is for people like this. And with him, you could really see a pattern of events. Like he did this, he was jailed for nine years. He was released on parole. He did it again. Right. He had kind of shown that he was not willing to learn from his mistakes and grow, which I am all for redemption. I'm all for people bettering themselves and, you know, getting another chance. But he didn't seem to want to take that.
1: No, not at all.
0: So I think we have one more story for our listeners today. Yes. And who are we talking about now?
1: Next up is John Smith. He was the son of Malton Farmer. He was apprenticed by a packer and served him as a journeyman. He then went on to serve the Navy First as a merchantman, then as a man of war, and was discharged after the Battle of Vigo Bay. Soon after that, he enlisted as a soldier, where he acquainted with bad associates and started his career as a housebreaker or burglar.
0: So, firstly, to say that he became a soldier and then started mixing with bad sorts can confirm. But we kind of forget historically that a lot of times people that were criminals were given a choice of serving or going to, to prison. So, especially back at this time, it mentions the Battle of Vigo Bay. For our non-historians out there, the Battle of Vigo Bay was a large naval engagement fought between the British and the Dutch against the Spanish and French. It was a very decisive English victory, so John here was on the winning side, but it was part of an overall much larger war called the War of Spanish Succession, which we don't talk about a lot outside of history circles and it's a bit unfortunate because that really was a world war it was fought in europe north america south america asia africa it was it was massive especially for the time where we 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 saw over a million people killed in this war now that is including disease as well as combat deaths but it was it was absolutely massive. It lasted for thirteen years. Yeah, so that, that's that's the that's the time period that this guy is coming up in. So he's press. he's served his country. Uh, well, not so much necessarily that he wanted to or not. A lot of them were press ganged, but he served. He fought. They won. He goes home, and then he's like, you know, maybe I missed the uh, the military, I guess, and he joins the army instead. And then he becomes a burglar because who knows why, (laughs) but that's, that's, that's what he does just to paint the picture of the world that John Smith was born into. So what happened to him next?
1: On December 5th, 1705, Smith was accused of four indictments and convicted of two of them and was sentenced to death. He showed little concern over his sentence until his execution was ordered on Christmas Eve of the same year. He was taken to the Tyburn and gallows where he was hanged. Smith's family and friends were present at his hanging. Some attempted to tug at his legs to shorten the suffering, while others held them up for more possibility that Smith would not die. Others fought over the body with anatomists. After hanging for a quarter of an hour, the people cried out a reprieve. The reprieve was granted and Smith was cut down. He was taken to a house in the neighborhood where he
0: recovered. So that's kind of what we heard about from Anne, like, Hold on the legs, make this, get this over quickly. Right. Um, I was always under the impression that idea behind hanging was to break the neck upon falling. Right. Maybe they needed to train their, their, their headsman a little better. I don't know. Yeah. So you were saying that he, he said something.
1: When asked what his feelings were during the execution, Smith replied, I remember a great pain by the weight of my body. My spirits were in great uproar, pushing upwards. When they got into my head, I saw a great blaze of glaring light that seemed to go out of my head in a flash. Then the pain went. When I was cut down, I got such pins and needles, pains in my head that I could have hanged the people who set me free. Smith was granted freedom a few months later on February 20th, 1706. John Smith turned back to housebreaking upon release. He was tried at the Old Bailey. Due to some complications of his case, the jury left the verdict to the 12 judges. The judges decided to set him free. There appeared to be no hope for Smith on his third prosecution. It seemed as if the judge would certainly sentence him to an execution once in for all. However, the prosecutor died the day before the trial was to commence, and Smith was once again set free. On May 17, 1727, 66-year-old Smith, using the name John Wilson, was found stealing a padlock. Two watchmen had seen him and another man trying to steal the padlock, so they went up to investigate. The other man escaped, but Smith was found with eight picklock keys. Smith attempted to get rid of the padlock, although the padlock was later found in the channel. Although it was agreed that Smith had intended to burgle the warehouse, Smith was found guilty only of theft. He was sentenced to transportation to Virginia. He then lodged an appeal to Sir John Ailes Knight, the Lord Mayor, requesting for physical punishment in lieu of transportation. In spite of his physical disabilities and a role as a father of two children, Court took no pity on him, and he was taken to Virginia on the Susanna.
0: And there he's just lost to history. He's kind of one of those interesting folk hero cases, I suppose, but he's also a perfect example of someone who doesn't learn his lesson. (laughs) So uh, he really seems to have escaped execution at least three times here. Uh, having the prosecutor die and you being set free as a result is a rather novel concept. I wonder how many times accidents happened around that time period for right. for such things. Rebel, this has been a really, really interesting and different type of episode for me. I yeah, think, it has. I think definitely dealing with with the macabre, and in most cases. It seems that merely surviving the first attempt doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get away or get out of it. Right. And double jeopardy definitely doesn't seem to apply in those cases. I do hear, though, that we have a very, very interesting missing persons case this week. We do. Would you like to fill us in on that?
1: Yes. So Shakaya Blue Harding was missing since July 23rd, 2018. She was last seen at the Tumbleweed Runaway Center at Billings, Montana. She is Native American or Alaskan and is 5 foot 4, 125 pounds with black hair and brown eyes. Shakaya had difficulties in life and was addicted to meth. When she didn't come home right away, her mother Tamara Goldsmith didn't find it particularly odd since she would often disappear for a while then turn up. Shakaya's mother did not report her missing until sometime in August of 2018. According to the Yellowstone County Detective Sergeant Frank Fritz, a person with the same name did purchase a bus ticket to the Grand Junction, Colorado area. It was purchased at the bus station in downtown Billings during the 4th of July weekend, but there's no evidence that Shakaya ever used the ticket. The family searched in Billings and anywhere they thought that she might be to no avail. They have received tips that she's been in Phoenix, Arizona or Great Falls, Montana, but the reports have not led anywhere. An ex-boyfriend of Shakiya has told authorities that he video chatted with her in September of 2018, but there's been no evidence that she's used any of her social media accounts since the summer of 2018. Anyone that has any information can contact the Yellowstone County Sheriff's Office at 406-256-2929.
0: So, she's been missing for about a little over five years now. Mm -hmm. Her story is a pretty sad one. She definitely seems to have had a pretty rough life.
1: Yeah,
0: hopefully she's out there rebuilding herself and rebuilding a new life for herself. But at the same time, we would like to have some closure for the family. If there's any information, please give a phone call to the Yellowstone County Sheriff's Office at the number that Rebel just gave us. It's been an up and down episode emotionally for me. I think Mm -hmm. I think our our listeners will also have had a similar experience so to say. Yeah. Speaking of our listeners, where can they tell their friends to to find us?
1: So we're on Podbean, and we're on a lot of the places that you can listen to podcasts. You can also visit us at Murderosity.com, most of the social media sites. And if you have any cases that you'd like us to discuss, either missing persons or creepy, unusual, macabre, murder, whichever, you can email us at Murderosity at gmail.com.
0: That's said we we do read everything that you guys send us we will yes. be we will be having some listener requested cases coming up think yes. that would be around the beginning of the year so
1: mm-hmm.
0: definitely keep keep listening in for those we're very excited for that any feedback that you have for us we're we're always willing to listen to so any information you have on the cases as well, if you know something that you know, maybe we missed or there's an interesting tidbit, please feel free to, to like, share, and, and write those comments up. We, we love to hear them, and we want to hear more. Yes. Well, Rebel, I think that's probably going to wrap us up for this week, unless you have any other closing thoughts. Nope, I'm all good. All righty. Well, thank you all, dear listeners, once more, and we'll catch you next week. Have a great one.
1: Stay safe out there.